On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, what's going on? Well, you know, we had actually a pretty interest. We don't talk about the markets exclusively here, as, as you've come to know, as we've done now. Mm-hmm. This is like our 30th or 31st of these things, and it's been less than a year, Eric. Yeah. Um, but uh, interesting day today. We had uh, the Dow was up 12, 1,250 points. The NASDAQ was up 7%. Uh, we had some positive inflation data. So, uh, you know, it's nice. Um, that That is the primary business that I'm in. And when you see that much green, it 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 shouldn't. It shouldn't have as big of an impact on my mood, but I'd be, I'd be, I wouldn't be telling you the truth if I said it didn't. When you have a, a big update like today, it was kind of nice. Yeah, it's better than the storms that have been brewing for the last few months. So, um, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm super excited. I think this is your first return guest, if I'm not mistaken. We had we had Sammy Chowdhury earlier this That's year. Right. Yep. He came back, came back twice. But this one, I'm really excited about this. We have Lester Young. He's he runs an organization called Path to Redemption, which is really looking at helping people that have been formerly incarcerated uh, get back into society and uh, and and really achieve all the things that they're capable of. And I've initially I connected with Lester on LinkedIn, and there's all these podcasts that we've done. I, I've I've gotten a lot of of I've gotten a lot out of this myself in terms of having these conversations. But there's a few I come back to, and one of them's Lester's because it's just. The, the lessons that he's learned in his life, he's a guy that, in my opinion, happens to have been incarcerated at one point. But a lot of the lessons that he's learned are things that anyone can apply, whether it's in business, whether it's with your family. And it was just, for me, such an impactful, very optimistic discussion that uh, I, I wanted to get him back on specifically now because he has just returned from Ghana where mm-hmm. he went back and as a black american i know that that uh that that these cultural heritage trips back to west africa are becoming a thing to do to sort of close that loop and close that circle and reconnect with um with some of the history of people that were that were brought over here not not by their own choice and lester put something on linkedin where uh i guess was it was it were you in the dungeon at the at the cape coast uh, stone castle yeah. lester is that it Yes, it was at uh, Cape Coast. Yeah, the dungeon in Amina El Amina. Well, some call it the Amina uh, Castle, but many of the Ghanaians call it the the dungeon, the slave dungeon. And it was just, I thought, such a really powerful picture. And I wanted to bring you back on really to talk about this trip, because obviously it's it's deep and meaningful and impactful to you. But I also think that as a society, the larger narrative here for me is that is we sometimes forget that we're all sort of on the backs of our ancestors here. I know that mm-hmm. myself, I think of you know, my personal history and and uh, in very different circumstances, but my family immigrated over here to the United States. And, and I try every day to be grateful for the sacrifices that they made because I'm standing on their shoulders, let's be honest. But yeah. I But I really wanted to talk about the catalyst for this trip for you. It was your first time out of the country. Um, yes. And just what that experience was. And as a person also that's been to Africa several times, although never that part of Africa, mm-hmm. uh, it's a fascinating, incredible con- continent. And I'm just really excited to have this discussion with you about this trip. So I guess a, the great place to start would be <laughs> sort of at the beginning, because you also put something on LinkedIn 
holding your passport and it was a big deal that you got your passport and and to those that have not listened to our first discussion yet why don't you give us a little background on why that was a big deal well it was a big deal you know um as you mentioned brent again thank you for first um inviting me to be uh, a, a guest again on your show i appreciate that um and I look forward to hopefully we continue to add some great value um, to your audience. But like you mentioned, I was incarcerated. I went to prison at the age of 19 years old and I was sentenced to life. And I served a total of 22 years and five months inside of the prison system. And I was paroled in 2014 out of South Carolina prison system. But I was paroled to be on a lifetime parole, meaning that all of my civil rights of the society was still being uh, restricted from me, meaning that I didn't have the right to come down to a lot of the collateral consequences that I face or many individuals like myself face with a felony conviction, all of those things. But also, the I did not have an opportunity because I was still on parole. I didn't have the opportunity to travel abroad. And so after five years, I was able to get a full pardon by the South Carolina governor here in South Carolina. And that gave me an opportunity to apply for a passport, which gave me the opportunity to be able to travel abroad. And I chose to go to Ghana as my first trip out of the country. Now, was the reason that that you chose to go to Ghana, was it did you know now you're going to use this passport again, a big deal to be able to leave the country and do some traveling? Has this been something that has been on your radar for a long time or or, it's it's, it's, to give me an idea in terms of how how long have you been thinking about making this trip? I've been been thinking about this trip for as long as I was in when I was incarcerated. Going back again, I mean, I think I I recall mentioning that I may have mentioned to you that I truly believe in the power of visualization and setting a goal and just seeing yourself there. So I've always, when I when I was in prison, I started reading books about different parts of Africa and Ghana and South Africa was those two places that really intrigued me because from just the history of knowing that the majority of the Afro-Americans uh, were, were transported out of that part of the country into the different diasporas of the world, right? So I always said that one day when I get out of prison, I wanted to go visit this place place to be able to retrace my steps. And I never abandoned that vision that I had. And an opportunity came once I got my passport. I remember uh, about two months prior to going on this trip, I remember telling my wife and daughter, like, hey, these are the two places I'm planning on going with my passport. And an opportunity came for me to go to Ghana, which was, again, those were my two choices, Ghana and to the Middle East. And and Ghana came up and I was like, let's go. I didn't care what the sacrifices I needed to make. I was going to make this trip to Ghana because it was something that I dreamed about many years and make doing while I was incarcerated. I think for our listeners that um, may not be as familiar with what uh, the transatlantic slave trade looked like, Ghana was a major epicenter for that. I think that I was reading some reading up a little bit before our conversation and out of the you know 66 European forts that were built. Mm-hmm. In Africa, many of those obviously, you know, tr- transferring a lot of a lot of cargo, but unfortunately, big parts of the slave slave trade. Forty six of those, mm-hmm. so we're talking more than two thirds were in Ghana. Um, yeah. So, give me an idea. Did you go? Were you with a group? Did you go yourself? No, I went with a group uh, of formerly incarcerated men and women to go through this process. Uh, the intent of this trip was to help heal from past trauma. And we believe that part of that was going back and reconnect. So all of it tied into this vision I had in prison. And now here I met this organization that is taking a group of 20 individuals who have been impacted by mass incarceration 
to take them back to begin this healing process. Because again, if you're not healed, hurt people hurt people. So we wanted to go back and be able to tap into really the true trauma that most Afro-Americans still carry with them. And that's that from slavery, being enslaved and brought into this country. Now, do you believe in sort of, I guess, an esoteric question, do you believe in in sort of generational trauma that 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 yeah. even though people did not necessarily have some of these experiences that their distant ancestors had, do you think that there's something to that trauma being transferred down the generations beyond yeah. just the stories? Yeah, I truly believe that, Brennan. I truly believe that. It's, it's like I truly believe that we things are passed on to us throughout DNA that we don't really understand, but it is there. And it's important that we really try to figure that out so that we can be able to process. It's almost like you find, like you see some families have cancer in, in their family. It's just something that has been passed on. And that's truly, when, when I looked at that and I heard about how cancer is passed on, I'm like, trauma is passed on in a very similar way. You know what I'm saying? So for us, it's important we try to unpack that and begin to heal that so that we don't continue to perpetuate that type of trauma that has been carried on from generation to generation that has been passed down from our ancestors. And just the, the, the dehumanization and the different things that we encountered in that process. And, you know, and you've dealt with some of that dehumanization and some of those challenges uh, when you're incarcerated. But mm -hmm. even knowing the experiences that you went through when you're behind when you were behind bars, was it frightening for you to face this aspect of your of your family history in person in, in basically there being there actually where a lot of these events took place? No, it was actually uh, I welcomed it because I'm a man. My my sole mission or mission statement, my personal mission statement for my life is to heal from my past trauma and pain so that I continue to model the way for other formerly incarcerated men and women, people of color to see that healing is OK. So for me, that trip, I embraced every part of that trip. Because it was more of me healing and being able to better understand who I am as a black man living in America, but are the descendants of slaves and people who were enslaved that came from the continent of Africa. And to be able to retrace those steps and to be able to figure out, like, who am I? Who, what is my bloodline? What is my, what is my family, my, my family real name versus the name that we've been given? All of that is so important for any, any individual to know who they are. You really know who they are, not just that we were once enslaved people, but really know who we were prior to being enslaved, right? And to me, that when I was able to make those connections in Ghana, it like literally just like I felt like for the first time in my life, like a part of me been awakened and restored in such a profound way, because now I had an understanding of who I, where I came from. And it's important, you know, it's I, I don't care what part of what race or nationality you come from. I think it's so important to know who you are and know your family history so that you can be able to connect the dots, not only with just understanding the trauma, but just knowing who you are, like, who are you in this country, which we call now America? When you first so you get off the plane, I'm guessing you flew into Accra. What Accra, yeah. what, what was Accra. that? What was that experience like? Powerful. <laughs> I wish you could see my smile, man. It was powerful just to like to know that I am now stepping on the soil of my ancestors, people who were literally shackled and taken off of this continent. I'm flying back into this on this continent as a free man looking to discover himself, 
but looking at a way to continue to honor those who were shackled and sent out of the country. And some of them died in that process. To me, so like I said, Brandon was so powerful just to touch the soil and to know that I did not come back enslaved. I came back as a free man searching for his identity. Identity. Well, yeah, and like you said, by choice, you made that decision. And, by and choice. One, <laughs> and one of the things that, that blew me away as I was, again, doing a little background reading before our discussion today, my understanding is, and you, you might have better data on this than me, but about 12 million Africans came to the, mm -hmm. to the United States in during the slave trade, or that yeah. might include the Caribbean, let's just say the New World. Yeah. But that is 12 million that survived from 60 million yeah. that were basically, for lack of a better term, kind of rounded up. Mm. And the, the conditions of not only the holding areas mm. before they came across the Atlantic, but also the voyage itself was so horrific yeah. that, I mean, you're talking about a mortality rate of 75%. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah. the fact that your, that your ancestors even made it here is kind of a miracle made it, it through is. that ordeal it is you know one of the things that we had an opportunity to do is go to what is called the last bath right and the last bath is is in kamasi a part of ghana close to cape coast right and in this this is where people our ancestors africans would walk for over four to six months 400 and some odd miles to this one place where they call it the last bath and this is where they will walk into this river, this canal, and wash their bodies before they were sold. You know, um, and you can't, can't even imagine walking for four months, you know, urine, defecation, women going through the menses cycle, bleeding, harmed, all of this stuff. And they walk for like four to six months to what is called the last bath. And from there, they wash their bodies. And then individuals would shave their heads and begin to auction them off. You know, and then to think about these individuals who are like wondering, like, what is the reason why or what is happening to me? Why am I why am I being faced with this level of cruelty? And it's just because, again, individuals wanted to use labor. It was no longer about spices anymore. It's now about how do we actually grab the labor from this country or this continent and be able to transport it across the world? so that we can enslave them and use their labor to continue to build the, the structure of these various countries, right? So to be able to walk back into that river and to be able to just close my eyes and imagine and be able to open my ears and be able to hear the screams and just envision and feel what individuals felt like walking in that last, that river, that um the last bath, but knowing that they walked four to six months and still unclear about what their destination was going to be, leaving their families, their children, everyone behind and no one knowing where they are. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's it, was, it was really hard, man. But it was, again, a part of what I feel I needed to do. And it was not to, you know, some people say, do this anger you to go back and to see what has happened to your ancestors. That was my next question, actually. <laughs> no, like, brother, I mean, to be honest with you, brother, it was never a level of anger that I felt. It was just a level of empathy to be able to understand it and to be able to know that these are so many lessons that I think that so many people in our country don't don't know. It is important that we take these lessons and share with our community as a whole so that we see like a lot of a lot of racial divide in our society because of the because of the social narrative where people are painting a picture about what another race of people is like. 
you know, but to be able to take the time to understand the journey of Afro-American people from the continent of Africa to America and fought 400 years of slavery and then to be able to fight for just the basic human rights in our society, you know, and just because of the color of our skin, that was the only reason why we were denied a lot of the civil rights or the civil opportunities of the society. So I wasn't bitter or angry or anything like that. It just really just, and, and, and it motivated me and encouraged me to embody what what I learned so that I can be able to bring it back and, and be able to share it with so many other people to give them a better understanding of it and also encourage them to take the trip back to Ghana, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. to go to Ghana and to be able to understand our our history, not only as Afro-American, but understand the world history and see how it all plays a role in what we look at in this current day society. How did I want to expand on that a little bit. How, how did it not make you a little bit angry? Because I understand, like going back again to just having a level of empathy, things happen. You know what I'm saying? It 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 was it was unfortunate that we were chosen, or, or my ancestors were chosen because they were on the continent, the color of their skin, or whatever that was. We were chosen to do something, yet we didn't we unwillingly chosen to be enslaved. But in that process, like I said, Brent, it was still a level of knowing that in spite of people were intended to break and to kill and harm and script, like you say, the 12 million people that made it across their spirits, they had a level of resilience and they came with not only resilience, but they came with a lesson to bear. You know, think about the contributions that we was able to gain from these 12 million plus people who came to the shores of America and different parts of the, of the world. They brought it back so much history to this country. You know what I'm saying? So, like I said, I don't, I don't, at right at this present time, I, I'm not angry. It's just that I'm awakened and I'm an enlightened. And I just want to let people know that we come from, when I mean we as descendants of Africans, we come from a very mighty, rich place. And it's important that we understand that, that our history didn't start in America by being enslaved people. We came from a, a culture. We came from come. We came from an economic structure. We came from an environment that had its rule, had its own religion, had its own community, had its own love. But unfortunately, when we came to America, many people think that we came here with nothing. But we came from a, from a rich continent that had its own culture and its own history. In terms of the the religion aspect that you bring up, uh, mm -hmm. I, I I understand based on our, our brief conversations together, you're a man of faith. Mm -hmm. How was your faith, I guess, enhanced or even changed by being over there in Ghana and uh, yeah. and thinking about what some of those more tr traditional historic faiths that your distant ancestors would have uh, would have been involved in? Yeah, uh, great question. Again, I, 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 to me, my my faith was strong. My faith was even it was strengthened again because just touching the soil, it's like something when you return back to your homeland, the land where you know where you're ancestors once walked and to be able to touch that soil that to me was spiritual and then to learn about just the spirituality of of our ancestors even the current Ghanaian people they they are very religious people they practice christianity they practice islam they practice ancestral acknowledgement i won't say i won't say ancestral worship but they they pay a lot of respect to their ancestors they believe that we the we, who we are today is a result of the sacrifices that the sacrifices our ancestors made to be able to put us into this place, right? And to see how, and even in some of the some of the villages or communities 
how they had these altars where they took the time on a daily basis to acknowledge the people who came and died and sacrificed to them. That to me was very powerful because as you mentioned in the beginning of this talk is that you said you stand on the shoulders of your ancestors, you know, and, and that's powerful when you know that you're not standing here because of who you are, because of your intellectual wit or whatever. You're standing here because people literally came before you that paved the way that you were able to stand on their shoulders and to see to see that the Ghanaian people, the African people still hold that in high reverence is that they love their ancestors, the people that died and sacrificed and to hold them in a level of, 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 of reverence. That to me was powerful. And I believe that that's something that I was missing in my own personal life. I, I think that's a beautiful thing too, because if there's, if there's an area where, I can kind of fault our society right now is that we think that nothing happened before yesterday. Yeah. And, uh, and this is across the board. This, this cuts across ideology. It cuts across mm -hmm. politics, race, everything. There's, there's this belief that we are somehow more evolved, civilized people that have all the answers. And, and I think a, a lack of a recognition for, for the men and the women and the people that came before us and the enormous contributions that they made. I mean, you even think about this conversation that we're having right now, how many millions of people went into one little piece of developing this kind of technology? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely nuts. Uh, yeah. now, now, how were you, how were you welcomed by, by the local people in Ghana? Uh, it was a warm reception. They, they, they looked at me and they saw me as, as family, you know, uh, before I, ha I had the naming, we went through part of the trip is that we went through this naming ceremony, right? And it went through the traditional way of naming yourself. And they believe in not naming you until the eighth day, the eighth day that you're born. They don't name you the same day that you're born. Because and the tradition is, is that they name you the eighth day because they believe that your ancestors lived through you. And sometimes the ancestors come through the infant to be able to look into the world. And, and if they choose to stay, they stay. So that's on the eighth day, they name you and they name you on the day that you were born. So I was born on a Thursday. I was born September the 7th, 1972. So according to the African tradition, the Ghanaian tradition is that I was born on a Thursday. So my name is Echo. Echo means he who was born on a Thursday. And it's very spiritual and significant that you understand it the day you're born because they believe that that's a portal, a portal between you and God. That's when all of your spiritual powers, everything that you you believe in, this is the day that you were born and that's the day that you celebrate. They don't wait until the one year celebration. They celebrate the day every every week they celebrate or they acknowledge or they do something spiritual on that day that they were born. That to me was very powerful, right? And to prior to that, that people will walk up to me and they will look at me and they begin referring to me as as uh, Nkrumah. They would say, "Oh, he's, he's the founder of modern Ghana, wasn't he?" Yeah, like literally, like, like people would come to me because uh, because of the traditions and the bloodline. You look like, oh, that's how they would judge you based upon who you look like. Right. They had it's just, it's just it blew my mind. But for three days prior to me doing this naming ceremony, people would say, hey, this you're a distant cousin of the Nkrumah family. And I was like, what are y'all talking about? Right. <laughs> but come to find out Brent, that my my bloodline from the from the from the ancestral studies and stuff found that my bloodline, my family bloodline, it comes from the Nkrumah. I come from the Nkrumah bloodline, meaning 
uh, leaders, messiahs, liberators for their people. So for three days, say again. That's a, that's fascinating. That's absolutely yeah, fascinating. Brother. Yeah, especially knowing who I am today. So it was no coincidence that the work that I do, I'm a man that believes in liberating. I'm a, I see myself as a messiah, as someone who helps free people like what I do, the work that I do. The things that I've been doing for over 30 years of my life, I never made that connection. I never saw a new people in my family that that was part of who we are. So to be able to go through a naming ceremony and then find out that you come from a family of leaders and messiahs and liberators and teachers, that again was a profound thing that made me feel like finally I understand who I am in the connection that I am not doing anything just by coincidence or happenstance. It is part of who I am. It's part of my DNA. The work that I do, the leaders, the things that I do as a leader, it's part of who I am. So I had a warm reception from every individual that I encounter in Ghana. It was no American. They, they took pride and celebrated the fact that we came back and we wanted to learn who we were prior to being enslaved people. For our listeners, as a, as a quick aside, so Kwame Nkrumah was um, yeah. I was Ghana was Ghana <laughs> was Gold Coast when it was a British yeah. colony, and it was the first. I, I love African history; I've read quite a bit of it. But mm-hmm. it was the first of the um, British colonies in Africa that was liberated, and Kwame mm-hmm. Nkrumah was the first. He was basically the George Washington. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was powerful. And, and the crazy thing is, is that I read not crazy thing, but. I read so much about Kwame Nkrumah when I was incarcerated, right? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, man. I was. I was literally. So when the name came, when so when the chief of of uh, of the naming the chiefs and the kings of uh, of Ghana they came and they and they did the naming ceremony. So when they say that your your bloodline is Nkrumah, Nkrumah. So when they begin, I told them immediately when they said it. I I shared the history of Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah, his first name meaning a person who was born on a Saturday. That's what Kwame means. And Nkrumah, again, that's just a family of liberators, messiahs. And so what Kwame Nkrumah did was naturally something that has been already passed down through his ancestral DNA, that he was a leader. He come from a family of leaders. So for him to lead Ghana to to uh, independence from the British and, and became the first prime minister as well as president of Ghana. Ghana was no coincidence because he come from a bloodline of people who do what he was doing already. Oh, it's, it's, it's incredible. That's uh, yeah, you're right. You know, it's, it, it's amazing when you get these little sort of threads that, that tie history and, and personal mm-hmm. stories together. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was powerful, man. To me now it's like, and going back again is almost like you know, now you under being that you know who you are in some ways you stand different. I stand different. I embrace yeah. my journey different. I walk more stronger in my purpose because I'm no longer like walking unclear about why am I doing. You know, I know I know I have this yearning and this passion to change and to empower people, but to be able to once and for all connect the dots to understand that this is who you've been destined to be. It's completely different, man. It's completely different. And to know that you come from that family of people, that's what God has placed on this earth to do. That's part of who we are. That's powerful. 
That's incredibly powerful. What what kind of other experiences do people, you mentioned you were one of 20 that went over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other 19, how, how did, did people handle it differently or did everybody sort of universally have this, this sense of uh, reverence and awe for having this experience? I think, you know, told, I still communicate with the individuals, the 19 individuals who went on the trip and some of, some of them are still processing it. Uh, it was a little overwhelming for a lot of them because they was really not, they was really not prepared for it right and 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 they asked me like what what made you what did you do to prepare for it i said man i did several things prior to my trip i didn't just pack my bags and got on this plane and flew to ghana i i went one of the things i truly believe in too brent is going to visit the elders of your family so prior to me even going to ghana i went to my elders my two elder um cousins who are 83 and 85 I went to them and they prayed for me. I, I got the blessings of my elders. I went to my father's grave, my father, my grandmother, my mother, my aunt, my uncle, all of them in the same cemetery. And I went there and I prayed asking them, you know, not, not, not asking them, but just talking to their spirit and letting them know to watch over me and protect me as I begin this journey. So I feel like when I went into Africa and I touched the soul of Africa, I brought my father, my mother, my grandmother, everyone that was standing with me celebrating this this pilgrimage back. And some of the individuals that I spoke to, they didn't do these things. They didn't go in. They didn't go into it with the spiritual uh, type of connection to it. They just went into it and said, hey, I'm returning back to Africa. I'm excited. But when they got there, they got so overwhelmed that some of them, they, they couldn't deal with the, the entire trip. They had to pull away from it some of the activities because it was so overwhelming and they wasn't really prepared for it emotionally, uh, the things that triggered them. Hmm. Now, what, what were the aspects that was it just the whole experience and, and coming to terms and realizations of, of what people went through? Was that what most people had yeah. to challenge with? Yes, yeah, definitely. When they went into, it went into the dungeon and they went into the dungeon and some of the, some of the, uh, the tour guides were explaining to us, what was the what was the things that individuals endured in these particular dungeons? Because you remember, well, I don't know if you if you read this part, but Portuguese uh, prior to the Amina Castle, it was run and controlled by Portu- the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the Dutch. And initially, this castle was built to just allow individuals who are traveling for engaging in trade and bartering for spices. They were just that castle. The Africans gave them that land to allow them to create a space where they can have an opportunity to rest before they take get back on their voyage back to their country, right? But then they converted when they saw again an opportunity to enslave the some of the individuals on that part on that part of the con- that continent. That's when the castle now turned into a dungeon and some of the dehumanization that took place there just because there were people who who were enslaved, you know, and a lot of women who it was a few women that were there and to hear how the women were raped. Uh, some of them had were killed. Some of their babies gave they gave birth to babies, infants in these in these slave quarters. And then the baby died, stillborn, died. And it was just so much there. And you're thinking about the small quarters that these hundreds and hundreds of individuals were living in with no air ventilation, no proper food, no proper cleaning and hygiene. They were sitting in these places awaiting to be transported and they would sit there for months. That was very triggering to know that people were treated this way all in the name of being enslaved in some financial 
uh, benefit that will possibly come from them if they actually make it across. So that was that was very uh, triggering for a lot of people. In those dungeons, because I've not been to Ghana, but but my understanding is again, you mentioned uh, no windows. There's no you know there's no running water. <laughs> there's certainly no toiletries. There's these people are yeah. down there for three three four weeks sometimes into the months yeah. um absolutely horrific conditions i do believe that places can carry a psychic energy mm. could 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 you still <laughs> feel that in yeah, in that yes location? yes 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 you literally if you if you, you sound like you, you you're quiet and we went there at night we went there like 10 o'clock at night and to be able to hear the waves hitting hitting the rocks and to be able to be in that dark place, man, it it, it it was, man, I'm getting chills just thinking about standing in, in those quarters and hearing and thinking about what happened here. Like there were like people literally hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people died that didn't make it on the ship, that they were literally taking dead bodies that could not sustain the, 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 the treatment and just the bodies breaking down, they were literally taking the bodies and throwing the bodies into the Atlantic Ocean, right? And so hundreds of bodies, when, when individuals wake up in the morning, bodies are floating in the Atlantic Ocean because they didn't, they didn't survive. Just the, the fact of the, all, all of the humiliation that went into their captivity, you know? So yeah. it, was, it was definitely triggering. But uh, Brent, I'm going to share this with you, right? That I thought it was very interesting to see this part of uh, like the, the 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 slave dungeon. Being a person who was incarcerated before and to see like the what they call like the holding cells and the cells that they or, or, or the yeah the cells that they were placing our uh, the enslaved people in. It was very interesting to see that that same architectural structure was actually incorporated in going about building prisons here in the United States. Tell me about that. That's, Expand on that. That was, I mean, if you if you get a chance, you know, your audience get a chance, if you go and look at, they have, I'm pretty sure they got like a virtual tour of the a dungeon, the castle, and they had like what they call like holding cells or cells that they would place people in. It was structured very similar, if you, and you, very similar to prison and solitary confinement, putting people into these small rooms and with no windows, no air, no air ventilation and allowing them to sit there. And the intent of placing them in these small cells was to break their spirit, to make them submissive. And then I and go fast forward 400 years plus after after leaving that coast. And now you have a prison that is built, you know, and the same architectural structure like, yeah, it was very it almost mirrored the early prisons in the United States how it was built, the whole architectural structure, the whole transporting system of it was very, it was, it was, it was a stark contrast to how prisons operate here in the United States. Yeah. And this is, might be, I don't think it will be for you, but it might be for, for some people listening is, is an issue. I, I'm a capitalist at, at mm. heart. I am a huge fan of profit <laughs> motive. Um, however, however, if there's one thing that I find totally abhorrent is this notion this idea uh, in the united states anyway of putting the profit motive be behind the prison system mm. you, profit motive is motive is so enormously powerful and i think for the most part operates for the betterment and advancement of humanity mm. however there are certain things you don't want to put that kind of power behind yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. one of those yeah. and one of those is turning you know being able to lock people up into a business model that 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 yeah. to me is incredibly dangerous and i think there's some corollaries with what 
with what was probably occurring on the coast, not to the, yeah. not to the same, I guess, ug- ugly extent. Any, anytime, anytime you're trying to break someone or stealing a piece of their soul, it's ugly. Let's be honest. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. Some of those things still persist. And I, and I, cha- not challenge, but I encourage individuals to look at that, that architectural structure of, of Ungana, the different dungeons, and when we look at mass incarceration, you look at, at after 1865, many people call that this is the beginning of incarceration and uh, mass incarceration. And some refer to slavery, slavery by another name, and it's called incarceration. Because after, eight, after 1865, you found that the government passed where now slavery was abolished. But then you started seeing where you had the black codes and these various forms of ways to incarcerate people. And now you fast forward this after 1865 to 2022, we got 2.5 million people in our society that is incarcerated. We still have the 13th amendment that says that it's okay to exploit the labor of those that are incarcerated, right? So that's a, that's a, when you look at that whole architectural structure, you would see a lot of resemblance and similarities of how the, the, how the enslavement, the castles were built, and it was trans, not only did they transport bodies, but they transported that architectural structure of how to continue to enslave and, and keep people in a structural manner to control and dominate and dehumanize. So when we see these prisons today, the earlier prisons, you you can honestly see the similarities of it. It was nothing changed because it worked. It worked for 400 years. If something worked for 400 plus years, why do I need to abandon it? I'm going to hold on to it. I'm just going to modify it, but I'm never going to abandon the foundational structure of it because it worked. Sure. Yeah, sure. So when you emerged in those dungeons, how did, how did you feel? Was it, was it a sense of, um, was it pain and that kind of emotion or was it almost a sense of triumph that your ancestors went through that and, and you went through it obviously in South Carolina, but you also got to see a little piece of, of what they experienced, you know, hundreds of years ago in, in West mm-hmm. Africa. How, what was your, when you walked out, or was it, or was it? Sometimes you just have experiences that are so mind blowing that yeah. you don't know what box to put them in. So they have their own box. Was it something yeah. similar to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I at first initially, I, initially, I broke down. I, I started crying like it, it was uncontrollable. I didn't, you know, I was fighting the tears back, and it just started just flowing out of nowhere, right? And 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 and, and when it really started getting to me is when I started making the connection. This reminds me so much of prisons in the in, in the United States, right? It reminded me of that, and to know that I committed a crime, I take full responsibility for the action that led to my incarceration. But these individuals here who were enslaved in this type of environments, they didn't never they didn't commit a crime. Yeah, they did not commit a crime. And they were they were subject to this type of brutality and humiliation and, and 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 harm just because of the color of their skin. That to me, that's when I had that moment of like, wow, this is this is what happened. I take my responsibility. I understand, but why would someone choose to enslave people and to treat them in that most dehumanizing way of torture to break their spirits? so that they can become individuals that will provide free labor to build a structure in various parts of the other parts of the continent, right? Other parts of the world. That's when I have my moment. It's sitting in that, in that dungeon. Go ahead. And so how do you then, so how do you, how how do you, I don't want to say justify because you can't justify it, but how do you, 
reconcile that because I, I've come to the when you see something really ha- terrible happening in the world, you know, you go down the rabbit hole long enough and some, sometimes it just comes down to good and evil, you know, mm-hmm. and that's and there's opposing <laughs> forces in the universe. Yeah. How do you how do you just I don't, again, I don't want to use the word just I'm trying to think of the right word, but how, how do you how do you make sense of that in, in, in your life, particularly given what your experience has been? Like I said, I'm still processing that. I'm still really trying to departmentalize and try to understand that. But I just, again, I just believe that what I experienced, I return back to that continent. I return back to that place free and had an opportunity to walk out of there when I chose to walk out of there. But I was able to be able to learn the lessons and and, and make the connections so that I can possibly use that to teach and to help others understand the structure and to begin to change the whole structure. So like I said, understanding now who I am, like I'm a liberator, I'm a teacher, I'm a messiah. So a lot of that now I was able to absorb it. And my next my next response was, how could I teach this? How could I inform others about this, what has happened? And to be able to make this connection so that we can see how we need to continue to fight to bring about some type of reconciliation for what has happened, but also bring a level of awareness and help individuals understand the challenges that people face right now in this country when it comes down to incarceration. Because we never had an example of creating a a humanized incarcerational system, we built the system that we only know how to build, and that was a system that was about dehumanizing and scripting people. And, and, and that's what I want to change is how do we, inca- if we're going to incarcerate people, let's change the model of how we incarcerate. Incarceration shouldn't be consist of dehumanizing. It should not be script of taking a person's human dignity away. It's about how do we continue to humanize people who have violated the, the laws of the society. But because of that structure, as I mentioned, that that structure that was that architectural structure, the whole everything that was tied to enslavement was passed on to building prison. It was never built on honoring the human dignity of people. So enslavement was not about honoring. It was about dehumanizing, about scripting, about breaking. And we see that in some of the systems today. So, again, Knowing that now, I want to be able to use what I saw in Ghana, what I experienced in Ghana. When we're talking about incarceration, we're talking about thinking about reimagining our incarcerational system in this country. We have to reimagine it by implementing some humanity in the structure of it. No matter what crime a person committed, that does not deserve and give anyone the right to strip a person of their human dignity. Because 85% of these individuals are going to return back into our community. And when you are subjecting to cruelty, dehumanization, what do you expect these individuals to return back and do in our communities? But because we never had a, a, a structural system of humanizing people that are incarcerated or enslaved or placed in bondage, we only went about it doing it in the manner in which we do it today. So I'm just hoping that whatever I I share, any individual get opportunity to, to talk to, that's what I want people to really see is that we have to reimagine our incarcerational system and how we treat people in our society. Because the only example we had was slavery in this country. When it came to how do we treat black and brown people, it was about dehumanizing, it was about brutality, it was about harm, it's about denying them opportunity. 
But that's something we have to reimagine that we can now see that we have to implement love and compassion and empathy in how we address and deal with people of other ethnic groups, other other races. Well, I think I think in terms of races, in terms of ideologies, opinions, that type of thing, I, I think it's it's one of the biggest problems that we have in this country right now is, you know, as a kid growing up, I was always in a house. We discussed politics and it was, it was just we just always did. My dad and I still, you know, talk, speak of politics quite a bit, but it was always, I don't agree with that person because X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now your opponents, uh, not just politically, but in some ways there's a coarseness to society now, which has always existed in human nature. But now I think it's, it's a bigger part of our culture where the person's not just wrong. They're, they're, they're not human. (laughs) You know, you you come Mm -hmm. back again to that dehumanizing people that's uh, that you're either trying to defeat or control or, or, or dominate in some way. So yeah. t- tell me what's next now, this I'm guessing just from talking to you, this absolutely <laughs> got you more excited about Path to Redemption. Yeah, um, yeah. So why don't you just remind uh, some of our listeners what Path to Redemption is and, and give me some ideas of what you guys are going to be up to now. A Path to Redemption is, is an organization that I founded while incarcerated and with the intentions of how could I help those who are currently inside of a prison system as well as formerly incarcerated heal from their own past trauma to become better citizens, better, better individuals in their family and our society. And that's what I've always stood on. But having an opportunity now to go back to Ghana, it just really just encouraged me more to really focus on helping individuals make those connections, but most importantly, helping individuals heal from their own personal trauma. And that trauma, when when we help individuals heal from that trauma, we something else emerges in these individuals to become even greater people, to even help them be able to identify who they are as individuals, to heal from their pain so that they can be able to now be able to be healthy men, women in our communities and our families. I think that once we're able to do that, we're able to change generational generational harm in our communities. And that's what Path of Redemption is all about now, is how do I help individuals tap in to who they are as individuals, connect with their ancestors, know who they come from, so they can feel empowered to move forward in this journey thing, in this journey called life. Now, how do people find you? And if they want to help out, what do they do? Uh, go to path path the number two redemption all one word dot org. You can go there. You can contact me. You could make a donation. You could reach out to me if you're looking for a speaker um, to come and share a message. You can reach me um, right there. Path the number two redemption dot org. Wonderful, Lester. Man, I, I thank you so much. I know that, it, and I, I give you I give you a a ton of uh, a ton of credit because I pinged you that message when you're in the middle of this amazing experience and you're still <laughs> over there. I'm like. You got to come back and talk to me about this. Uh, so thanks. Thanks for your, your patience and your willingness to uh, to to hop in and share the story. And uh, again, this is one I'll listen to again and again. And can't thank you enough for for not only everything that you shared today, but just the the honesty and the um, the realness that you bring to uh, you brought to both of our conversations. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, I appreciate you seeing the value, seeing the value in the message. And I thank you for using your platform to to share this, you know. I really do appreciate it, brother. Absolutely. Lester and Brent, this has been fantastic. Lester, I can't help but think about what we what we can and cannot do, right? So a little bit about my history very quickly is my wife and I worked with at-risk youth for uh, quite a few years, at-risk young men. And one of the things that we could help them with was changing the narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. What they have been told, whether they're told they're a loser, whether they're told they're violent, whether they're told they're they're not going to amount to anything. We could help them change that narrative. Yeah. What we couldn't do is point them back to their history. Yeah. 
mm. their ancestors. We kind of knew certain certain kids. We had kids of all ethnicity, but it wasn't yeah. something that we could do effectively. Mm. I hope and pray that what you're doing now and the the movement that you're making with this journey that you've been on will be something that people can share with young folks that don't understand that. Maybe somebody's talking to them about the narrative that they have on their own internal voice or what they're hearing from the outside, but now coupling that with this is your history, these are your ancestors, this is what they had to overcome, you can overcome too. Yeah, you know, I want to share this with you, right? This is this is a Sankufa. This is a this you see this in various parts of Ghana. Like they have multiple symbols, but this is a Sankufa. And you see it's a bird. And normally it's like I have it here too. It's like it has a seed in its mouth. And the symbolism behind this Sankufa is that in order for you to move forward, you have to return back to your past to get the mm-hmm. lessons and the wisdom from your past in order to move forward. And you'll see most likely they don't have the feet here, but the Sankufa never turns his feet backwards. It's always pointing forward. Is just reaching back into the past and getting the lessons to move forward. So when I heard about when when someone shared with me what the Sankufa was, I was like, this is something that that represents who I am as a, as an Afro-American person in this country is that I have to, like, turn back to the past. And some people say, why do you live in the past? Because there's so many lessons in the past, whether you read the Bible, the Holy Quran, the Torah, whatever religious book or whatever book you find people find strength from the past. And this is why this Sankufa means so much to me, because it's a symbol of in order for you to move forward, you have to go back to the past. And when people return back here, get the lessons and the wisdom from the past, they now have a brighter approach to their future. Mm. So that's just the beauty of understanding that cultural history there. Like every one of us have a have a have a history that we need to know about, like knowing who your father, your father, 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 father is, right? Knowing that history, it gives you like, yo, I'm that guy. I have I have a certain rule and and and, and certain things I have to continue to do to honor the name of my father, 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 right? Mm-hmm. But you look at some Afro Americans that like we came and our names, we were script of our names. We don't know who a lot of us don't know who we are. We're Joneses and Youngs because this is the name that we were giving from those who who we who enslaved us but that's really not our true name so to be yeah. able to turn back and say yo i'm i'm echo nkrumah i was born on a thursday my name is lester young this is my american name but my traditional african name is echo mm-hmm. means one who is born on a thursday nkrumah meanings that my i come from a lineage of leaders and liberators and messiahs and teachers that empowers people differently Absolutely. And it it also becomes something absolutely incredible that that now it's it's on it's I'm I'm saying you in this specific example, but it becomes on you to live up to that. And and when you start to think back and and I think about some of the stories from from my own family history and I look around some days if I get discouraged or whatever, I'm like, dude, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you got nothing to complain about here, man. It's time to, it's time to, it's time to man up for lack of a better term. And you got to stop crying, man. It just matter because your ancestors (laughs) came and they went through a whole lot more worse things than you did. So you living this luxury, fabulous lifestyle as a result of that. And lastly, I would say that was also empowering that I didn't get a chance to share is, is the Ghana money, the CD. 
and to see like, you know, in America, you see white males who have been presidents on the currency. Mm-hmm. But to, in Ghana, to see six black men who were founders and liberators of that country to see it on the dollar, on the currency, that was powerful mm-hmm. to see. And then also to know now, like my daughter, who's seven, to be able to show her that she come from a line of leaders and to show her that part of one of her bloodline is Nkrumah and he's on he's on the he's seat on the money of Ghana. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's like, oh, you know, it's, it's different, man. It's different, brothers. But I'm gonna let you guys go, man. It was a pleasure talking to you, Brent. Listen, I need some financial advice, man. Like uh, hey, anytime. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Seriously, I, I feel I feel like um I feel like you meet people for different reasons and uh and I'm I'm glad that we're getting to know each other better. Yeah, definitely, man. I would love to be able uh, offline at some point, sit down and just uh, learn like more about financial investments. Uh, Yeah, because I'm 50. I'm looking to not be doing. I want to build a legacy for my family that is going to generational financial wealth and just looking for ways to make better investments with my money and opportunity. If I'm making the money, I know that money doesn't grow by sitting in a savings account. Right. Right. I don't believe that either. So it's about how, what are some of the great tips or advice or some of the things that I could start? Even if you have some suggestions on books, videos, what I can begin to watch just to like increase my uh, financial IQ as I move forward and making money, want to be able to invest the money that will create, increase, not increase, but create a greater return on the money versus just having money sit. I'm not a, a person that spends and wastes money. Sure. I'll be looking for ways to invest money. And as I'm getting older, I'm 50, my daughter's seven. I want to be able to create something that would extend outside of me when I transition, if I transition before her, to be able to leave something for her financially as she can continue to build. When my father died, my father died uh, two years ago. He died uh, not leaving wealth. He didn't leave insurance policy. He didn't leave a house that was paid mm-hmm. for. He didn't mm-hmm. leave None of these things, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, it's part of my role now as the only son of my father is to not pass that to my daughter. Like my house that I have, this is her house. Like leave this is paid for life insurance, money, investment, property, something that my father didn't have the knowledge of at the time. So he died with just enough money to bury him. Right. But we still got a house that we still have have to pay for. Mm-hmm. which is yeah. not a problem because it's a family house, but it's just the fact that I don't want to leave the earth with that responsibility on my daughter to take care of things as a man. I think it's my role to be able to provide it. So whenever you get a chance, man. Hey, anytime I'm here, I'm here as a resource right. for you. So, Appreciate you, brothers. Hey, thank you so right. much, Lester. Thanks, Lester. Well, Lester, thank you so much again. I mean, this is, as always, it's an amazing conversation with you. And I think that that last image is a really powerful one, keeping your feet forward, but still looking back and looking at the lessons, looking at the struggles, looking at the, at at what the people who came before us all did to get us where we are today. And uh, I'm just grateful again that you spent this afternoon with us and uh, look forward to our next discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Lester, I'm just going to echo what he said. Thank you so much for your time, Brent. Of course, thank you for everything that you do uh, for myself and also for the entire listening audience. And speaking of listening audience, our last thank you is always going to go to you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. 
And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host, co-host, and or guest and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Raymond James or MP Advisors LLC.